The three topics that stand out as the ones you want me to talk about are precisely the true, the good, and the beautiful. Epistemology, ethics, and aesthetics, including linguistics, with one or two extras. So tonight we're going to talk about whether we're both fated and free. And then next time we're going to talk about why we have an identity crisis. And then finally, the beauty of language. Are we both fated and free? And if so, how is that possible? When Christianity entered the world, it added not just new ideas, but new categories. One of the most important, I think, is the category of the person. It didn't subtract very much from ancient thought. It subtracted certain ideas, but it didn't subtract categories. There's one exception. There's one category that almost all of ancient pagan thought classified things in, and Christianity simply subtracted that category. It's called chance. In a providential universe, nothing happens by chance. There's a connected category, fate, which wasn't simply dropped but changed. It was changed to predestination or destiny and connected with divine providence. No story that anybody has ever told is totally lacking in some sense of destiny or fate or predestination. And the reconciliation of predestination and free will, of course, is a classical philosophical problem. Whenever I begin philosophy courses by asking students what questions you'd like philosophy to answer, uh, that's always one of the big three or four. Everybody always mentions that one. If you throw the Christian God into the picture, does that make it harder or easier to answer the question? Well, both. Because an impersonal fate seems to contradict free will much more seriously than a loving, cooperating God interacting with humans like a father with children does. And yet the formula for the relation between fate and free will is much easier and simpler than the formula of how a parent interacts with a child. Science might someday come up with a formula for fate and free will, but science will never come up for a formula for parenting. I remember my uh, aunt, I guess it was, or was it my grandmother, who had a lot of kids, said, having fits is more rational than having children. I thought that was a very wise saying. <laughs> the Lord of the Rings is dense with destiny. Even though the events in the plot are surprises to the reader and to the protagonist, they also form a pattern. And we gradually see that pattern as we read through the story. Especially when we read the story the second time with not just foresight, but hindsight. We see that everything that happened had to happen. None of the endings, the happy endings or the sad endings, are contrived or artificial or unconvincing or unnatural or unbelievable, even though they're unpredictable. Sauron had to fall. At least some of the hobbits had to rise to the occasion and become heroes. Sacrifices had to be made. Battles had to be fought. It was predictable that the unpredictable would happen. Usually you see that only in the second reading. That's probably true of our lives too. Second reading, of course, is done in heaven. Sam especially has this sense of destiny at the beginning. He says on page 85, when he's just 
about to go away from the Shire, sticking to Frodo like a brother. I seem to see ahead in a kind of way. I know we are going to take a very long road into darkness, but I know I can't turn back. I have something to do before the end, and it lies ahead, not in the Shire. I must see it through, sir, if you understand me. Well, he doesn't quite understand himself, but we understand that he has to see it through. On the other hand, each of the protagonists make hundreds of free choices. You can't separate passages about destiny and passages about free choices. They're two dimensions of not only the same book, but the same events. Some of those choices are large, some of them are small, and even some of the small ones make enormous differences. For instance, on page 73, just one page after Frodo leaves Bag End, singing his road song, he hears a horse on the road, which is apparently Gandalf. But, Tolkien writes, a sudden desire to hide from the view of the rider came over him. So he said apologetically, it may not matter much, but I would rather not be seen on the road by anyone. Now, at this point, Frodo did not know the danger of the Black Riders. But if he hadn't hid, the quest would have ended then and there. The Rider would have captured Frodo and the Ring, delivered both to Sauron, and all of Middle-earth would have become Hell Incarnate. Little choices. Nearly everybody believes in free will, until they meet arguments against it. Just as kids naturally believe in God until they meet atheists. They meet arguments against free will either from social scientists who claim that all our choices can be explained by heredity plus environment or from philosophers who begin with two assumptions, one false and one true. The false assumption is that a human choice must be either caused and thus determined and thus necessitated and thus unfree or else free and thus uncaused. And the true assumption is that something that is totally uncaused is ultimately unintelligible. And the answer to both the social scientist and the philosopher is that the notion of free causality is not a contradiction in terms. It's a uniquely human kind of causality. Causality does not contradict free will. Why do we believe in free will? We all believe in it because we experience it, just as we believe in thought. There are other arguments. There's a strong reductio ad absurdum argument. If there is no free will, then the following absurd consequence follows. All moral language is meaningless. You do not praise or blame or counsel or command or reward or punish machines. When the Coke machine fails to deliver a Coke, you don't persuade it and argue with it, preach to it, give it a guilt complex, tell it to go to confession, tell it to repent. You kick it. So if human beings are just complex machines, the logical conclusion is stop doing all that moral nonsense and simply kick people. That's a dangerous conclusion to make because some people will take that seriously and start kicking you. Here's the danger of being a philosopher. I've told some of you this story already. I was once arguing in an ethics class about abortion and there were two very bright feminists in the front row and I challenged them to produce a single argument that would justify abortion that would not also justify infanticide. And they argued for a while, and, and they didn't produce any arguments, and I refuted them all. I thought I did a very good job. And after the class, they said to me, uh, Professor, we didn't believe that you could persuade us to change our minds, but you did. Your logic is too strong. I said, well, I'm very pleased. You're pro-life now? No, we're pro-infanticide. 
Well, consistency. We believe in free will, though, mainly not because of logical arguments, not because to deny it is inconsistent. The main reason we believe in free will is we directly experience it. We all know the difference between being free and being forced. Sometimes a thing is in our power or control, and sometimes it's not. And there's also middle cases where we're at the mercy of a force, but the force is internal, like an addiction. That's the case with the ring. The ring is an external force that appeals to an internal force, very much like the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. It's our addiction, not somebody else's. It comes from within, and it's our responsibility, because if we had made different free choices in the past, we might not have that addiction. And yet the addiction, though it's ours, and though we are responsible for it, removes our freedom. You can't say addiction is an expression of freedom. It's the opposite of freedom. Sometimes we freely sell ourselves into slavery. Sometimes we forge the fetters of our bondage with the strength of our freedom. So we all know that there is free will from our experience. We also naturally believe in something like destiny. It was meant to be, we say. It's not as clear, to me anyway, why we naturally believe this. I don't think the deepest reason is that life would be meaningless without it. That's true. But that's a very abstract argument. And I don't think ordinary people have as their deepest motive abstract arguments, however strong. So I think it's a much more mysterious direct intuition that, of course, there's destiny. So since most of us believe in both, we wonder how both can be true at the same time, since they seem to contradict each other. We ask questions like, does God pull my strings or do I pull my own strings? Am I my own puppeteer or is God my puppeteer? And the answer, of course, is neither. Because destiny is not puppeteering. Well, there are good philosophical arguments for believing both and for believing that the two ideas don't contradict each other. But I think the strongest, most convincing evidence comes not from philosophers at all, but from storytellers. Because both of these ingredients responsible free choice and destiny are always present in every successful story, every interesting story, every story we find realistic, true to life. A story without predestination is a story without an author, and that's a story without authority. It can be funny, but it can't be profound. Waiting for Godot is such a story. Two idiots stand around verbally abuse each other brilliantly. It's hilarious. But it's hilarious precisely because it's the absence of a story. It's a kind of Monty Python with a flea in the brain. But a story without free will, a story about rain falling or machines working, that's not a story at all. Every story has to have in it free persons making free choices, which they could have made differently. Otherwise, there's no drama. Well, how do we get them together? Let's think more deeply about how a story gets them together. Every story has to have a plot and thus a plotter, and thus destiny. Authors can be bad plotters, they can be plotting plotters, and their stories can turn out not just sadly, but badly. Authors can commit destiny fallacies, just as philosophers can commit logical fallacies. For instance, it is Ahab's destiny to be swallowed by Moby Dick. There would be a destiny fallacy if Melville made Ahab listen to a pop psychologist, be cured of his obsession, seen the error of his way, and become nice Captain Ahab. That would be a destiny fallacy. 
there would be a destiny fallacy if Scrooge exorcised the ghost of Christmas future, put Bob Crotchet in the poorhouse, and become the godfather of the London Mafia. So there's a logic of stories and of the destiny in stories, though it's not quite the logic you find in textbooks. We may not know how destiny and freedom can both be true, but we know that they must both be present in true-to-life stories because they're present in life. Although philosophers don't help as much as stories, they do help. And I will now give you two little pieces of help, the two best philosophical arguments I've seen to explain how free will and destiny or predestination don't contradict each other. The first is a theological principle that I think Christians understand better than anybody else. Namely, the principle that because God is love and loves all of his creatures, therefore divine grace in dealing with anything in the realm of nature, God's creatures, always perfects nature and works through it rather than suppressing it or bypassing it or rivaling it. And a good human author does exactly that with his characters. He loves all his characters, even his villains. He doesn't push them. He's all-powerful, but from within the characters rather than from without. They're not pieces on a chessboard. And therefore, divine predestination must preserve human free will because divine predestination invented and willed human free will. We are free precisely because God wills us. Aquinas argues that man is free precisely because God is omnipotent. He argues human powers sometimes get anything they want, but they seldom get everything they want in the way that they want it. They have to make compromises. But God is so omnipotent that he not only gets everything that he wills, he gets everything done in the way that he wills so that subhuman things happen unfreely and human things happen freely. Just as in a novel, the setting is not free, and the characters are. You don't want the walls of Hamlet's castle to take part in the fencing match. But you do want the fencers to. The second philosophical argument is from Boethius in chapter 5 of the Consolation of Philosophy. And it's familiar to some of you, I know. It is that since God is not in time, destiny doesn't mean literally pre-destination like pushing dominoes. The best summary of this point I've ever seen is C.S. Lewis's. By the way, this book that's coming out in August, The Philosophy of Tolkien, has as one of its purposes to show that on every one of these 51 points, Tolkien's philosophy and Lewis's are the same. I quote Lewis almost as often as Tolkien, and they're wonderful parallel passages. Here's Lewis's summary of how free will and predestination fit. Almost certainly God is not in time. His life does not consist of moments following one another. If a million people are praying to him at 10.30 tonight, he need not listen to them all in that one little snippet, which we call 10.30. 30, and every other moment from the beginning of the world, is always present for him. If you like to put it that way, he has all eternity in which to listen to the split second of prayer put up by a pilot as his plane crashes in flames. Suppose I am writing a novel. I write, Mary laid down her work. The next moment, there came a knock at the door. For Mary, who has to live in the imaginary time of my story, there is no interval between putting down her work and hearing the knock. But I, who am Mary's inventor, do not live in that imaginary time. Between writing the first half of that sentence and the second, I might sit down for three hours and think steadily about Mary. 
God is not hurried along in the time stream of this universe any more than an author is hurried along in the imaginary time of his own novel. It's a pretty good refutation of process theology, I think. He has infinite attention to spare for each one of us. He does not have to deal with us in the mass. You are as much alone with him as if you were the only being he had ever created. When Christ died, he died for you individually, just as much as if you had been the only man in the world. That's from Mere Christianity. A few pages later, he adds one more point. If God foresaw our acts, it would be very hard to understand how we could be free not to do them. But suppose God is outside and above the timeline. In that case, what we call tomorrow is not foreseen by God, but seen. It is visible to him in the same way as what we call today. All the days are now for him. He does not remember you doing things yesterday. He simply sees you doing them. Because though you have lost yesterday, he has not. He does not foresee you doing things tomorrow. He simply sees you doing them. Because though tomorrow is not yet there for you, it is for him. You never suppose that your actions at this moment were any less free because God knows what you are doing. Well, God knows your tomorrow's actions in just the same way because he is already in tomorrow and can simply watch you. I think Jesus used that principle in, is it Matthew 11, I think, where he is challenged by the Sadducees who accept only the authority of the first five books of Moses and a clear affirmation of life after death doesn't seem to be there. They pose the question of if there's a life after death, what about the woman who had seven husbands? Whose wife will she be in heaven? And he answers that by saying there is not marriage in heaven. But then he says, as to the resurrection, you are wrong. And he proves that they're wrong by taking three passages from the first five books of Moses, all of which are names of God, which they believe in. And by putting these three names together, he emancipates God from time. One of them is God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, which is why he doesn't command human sacrifice like Moloch and the, and the pagan demon gods. Another is that he says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush with his own eternal name, the name by which he would be known by all generations. And no Jew will ever pronounce this name because it's God's own name. I am the sacred tetragrammaton. Well, he puts those three names together and he says, assuming that they know that Moses is 400 years after Abraham, speaking to Moses from the burning bush, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to his presence. There's a funny Hebrew expression. I don't know Hebrew, but I'm told by the footnotes that the more literal way of saying that is all live to him. That is to his consciousness or to his presence. That's almost exactly what Boethius says. If there's any one obvious theological theme in the Lord of the Rings is divine providence. Divine predestination. The classic passage that Tolkien himself refers to in a couple of his letters is Gandalf's explanation to Frodo in the Shire near the beginning when Frodo realizes the horror of the ring and wants to get out of a job, rather like Moses is trying to get out of a job at the burning bush. 
Gandalf says when he tells him a little bit about the history of the ring, how Bilbo picked it up and how Gollum lusted after it. There was more than one power at work, Frodo. The ring was trying to get back to its master. It had slipped from Isildur's hand and betrayed him. Then, when a chance came, it caught poor Deagol, and he was murdered by Smeagol. And after that, Gollum, and it had devoured him. It could make no further use of him. He was too small and mean. And as long as it stayed with him, he would never leave his deep pool again. So now, when its master was awake once more, and sending out his dark thought from Mirkwood, notice now we have three wills at work. Sauron, the ring, and people like Deagol and Smeagol and, and Isildur. So now, when its master was awake once more and sending out his dark thought from Mirkwood, it abandoned Gollum, only to be picked up by the most unlikely person imaginable, Bilbo from the Shire. Beyond that, there was something else at work, Gandalf goes on, beyond any design of the ringmaker. Here's a fourth will. I can put it no plainer than by saying that Bilbo was meant to find the ring and not by its maker. In which case, you also were meant to have it. And that may be an encouraging thought. If you're meant to have it, there's got to be a meaner behind the meaning. Now, that's not Sauron. Sauron didn't mean Frodo to have it. Uh, it's not Bilbo. Bilbo eventually did mean Frodo to have it, but that came later. That was a deliberate choice. It's not Gollum's choice to lose the ring. It's not the ring's choice. Obviously, it's God's choice. So, very strong divine providence. I calculated once, without going through the book... I thought I was going to write an article about this, and it would be much too long. It would take a whole book. Uh, and it was about divine providence in the Lord of the Rings. And my point was going to be that providence works in all sorts of ways, most of which are small and hidden and subtle, but you can see them. So I asked myself the question, how many events are like that in the Lord of the Rings? How many threads in the tapestry fit together? If event A or B or C had not happened then the plot could not have been tied up and the fellowship would not have been successful. And I thought there was maybe a dozen. I stopped when I got to 51. I wasn't even halfway through the book. If one little event had happened a little different, if Barlam and Butterbur hadn't had ADD and forgot to deliver Gandalf's letter, if some of the worst things that happened didn't happen, well... We say, that's strange credulity, doesn't it? Isn't that too much? Too many coincidences? Too many angels pushing the scenery around? Well, you don't see the angels pushing the scenery around, but you see the scenery being pushed around. For instance, yourself. 28 billion sperm cells. One of them gets into your mother's ovary. Taxi, you exist. One day, a hundred years ago, your great-grandfather was sitting on a park bench. He's right-handed, so he naturally looks left. He doesn't usually look to the right. That day, a squirrel dropped a nut on a branch, and it hit the middle of the branch, and it was just an 
a hundredth of an ounce heavier on the north side than on the south side. So it fell on the north side of the branch and bounced to your grandfather's right instead of his left and hit a pile of dry leaves. And your grandfather happened to turn his head to the right and notice there, sitting 20 feet beyond the squirrel, your great-great-grandmother, a pretty girl on a bench. He never knew her, but yeah, strike up a conversation. One thing led to another. Here you are. If the wind had been blowing just a little more, so that that nut had gone on the left side of the branch instead of the right, you would not exist. Every single one of us here is a great might not have been. <laughs> if a drop of rain falls on the continental divide in the middle of Colorado, and if it hits a stone, and if it bounces west, it'll eventually find its way into the Pacific Ocean. If it bounces east, it'll eventually find its way into the Atlantic Ocean. 3,000 miles determined by uh, the shape of that rock. This is not unusual. It happens. And Tolkien shows us it happening in the plot. And yet, most of those things that happen either come from choices that people make and could have made differently, or they impinge on people and they can react to them differently, heroically or non-heroically. There's almost always an element of free will working together with divine providence. And we see, we don't understand, but we see them both working together. We don't see the mechanism. We don't see how the gears interact, but we see it happening. And Tolkien shows us. One of the basic principles of telling a good story is show, don't tell. He shows you. You want to know how to stop abortion in America? Show allow the most common operation in America to be shown for the first time on television. Uh, make windows. Facts are not arguable. Arguments are. I don't usually change my mind about fundamental, personal, ethical, philosophical questions that I have much of a stake in. And I did change my mind, not usually through philosophers, but through writers. Dostoevsky changed my mind on an idea that I thought was silly called collective responsibility. I always thought, I am responsible for my own sins, not Hitler's, not for the world's. I mean, the world is responsible for its own sins, and I'm as sinful as anybody else in the world, but this idea of collective guilt or collective responsibility, nonsense. Just a romantic illusion, collectivism. Well, Dostoevsky, who's a passionate anti-collectivist, shows, doesn't tell, shows in the Brothers Karamazov how that's true, how we are each responsible for all, and the consequences of accepting that the kind of heaven on earth that comes from accepting responsibility and guilt, and the kind of hell on earth that Ivan Karamazov goes through in, in not being able to accept that. Very convincing showing. So I am not going to explain, beyond Thomas Aquinas and Boethius, how it works that we're both fated and free, but I'll just point you to authors like Tolkien and Dostoevsky to convince you that it can be shown. All right, that's enough stuff to toss out to react to. Too much, probably. I was wondering, when you spoke about identity and Gollum using the word we and unable to say I, if you see any parallels in culture with making so many decisions, whether it's in vices or that kind of thing that you become inhumane, what kind of parallel would that look like as far as using the word we and maybe not being able to say I? Kierkegaard has something about that. Way back in the 19th century, he says, 
One of the problems with representative democracy, which he's, as far as I can tell, in favor of, is that it's so easy to disavow responsibility for your social and political choices because of the voting process. You stay home and vote, and your mind is there, but you don't appear in public and take responsibility for your actions. It's not concrete. It's totally abstract. That helps to produce abstractions like consensus, the will of the people, uh, the party. No, the party is concrete, but the ideology is abstract. You identify with a cause. To say, I voted for Richard Nixon is embarrassing, but it's concrete and you take responsibility. That's one way. There are countless other ways. Our philosophers give us all sorts of excuses. We can identify with and blame our Freudian id or our Marxist capitalist oppressors or our Darwinian ape heritage. Uh, we can blame anything, especially history, especially the past, especially our ancestors. They're dead. They can't answer back. We can easily blame them. Yeah. In terms of the way that Tolkien talks about the idea of free will and destiny working together, I think it's interesting that in the books he doesn't, or the characters don't talk about it much. You see destiny in particular at work, but you don't hear many conversations yep. about it other than the Gandalf one that you yep. referenced and a few others. And I was wondering what your thoughts are on the way that we as Christians speak about those sorts of things, um, particularly speaking um, about God and agency, you know, God did this or God did that versus... Okay, I have a theory about that. Uh, I'm a two-point Calvinist. I believe in predestination. And I think the idea of predestination is absolutely essential, but in a certain place, afterwards. It's very damaging beforehand. Teach somebody predestination in the beginning, and almost inevitably, the result will be fatalism. Oh, well, whatever will be, will be. I can't change God's will, so I'll just fulfill it by whatever. So you get whatever. But after you've made your choices, insofar as they're good choices, the great danger is pride. Oh, look what I did. So predestination there is an answer to the question you should ask. Where did that ultimately come from? From God's will or the instrument? Uh Uh-huh. So when you are aware of an idea is almost as important as whether the idea is true or false. I would say predestination is false if it comes early. Another example, the same principle. Lewis mentions this sometimes in screw tape letters. When you're tempted to any sin, the devil wants you to think about God's mercy and not God's justice. And after you've sinned and are tempted to despair, that's when he wants you to think about God's justice and not God's mercy. Those are both two eternal truths, but thinking about them at the right time makes all the difference in the world. Follow on with that. Is it fair to say then that free will is what we get when we face forward into the future or the present and predestination is the past? Because we're not free to change the past and we're still free to change the future. And we look back mm-hmm. and say, that was God's perfect will, otherwise mm-hmm. it wouldn't have happened that way. Mm-hmm. That's fair enough. That, that's, a, that's a useful uh, way of separating the two out in terms of the time angle, the time perspective. Yeah, that's useful. Lewis, in Surprised by Joy, says in the last few pages when his conversion is finally complete that it surprised him how inevitable it seemed and how simple and natural it seemed almost like just relaxing instead of doing something taking off a suit of clothes instead of putting one on and he says i think the iron resolution is usually a put-up job is usually a fake and then he says was this my own choice or was this god's He doesn't quite use those theological words, but 
he asked the question, which I had a copy of the book. You don't have surprised by joy here, anybody, does it? Do you? He puts it so nicely. He says, was this predestination or free will? And he says, in the end, it comes to the same thing. Because in a choice like that, maybe there is no choice like that because there's nothing like God. But when you choose the God who is everything with the whole of yourself, there's no part of yourself left outside that choice. So it couldn't have been different. And yet, for that same reason, it's totally free. I think of other momentous choices actually made in history. Caesar's choice to cross the Rubicon. He changed history. The Rubicon's the boundary of the authority of Caesar. He's commanded to go out into Gaul and conquer the barbarians, but not to go into Rome. And the triumvirate says, you must not cross the Rubicon. And if he does that, then he's putting himself above the triumvirate and he's crowning himself emperor and he's changing the republic to an empire and changing the whole history of the world. Well, he crosses the Rubicon, which is traditionally used now as a, a choice that is weighty with destiny. His words about that are something like this. I did it because it was my fate. I had to do it. Yet that's the freest choice he ever made. Even clearer is the famous words of Martin Luther before the Diet of Worms. He thinks he's going to die. Uh, will you recant your heresy? And he can't. And look at his words. Here I stand. I can do no otherwise. God help me. Sounds like there's no freedom at all. That's the freest choice he ever made in his life. So the image of the two roads up the same mountain, though that image is not accurate for different religions, I think is accurate for free will and predestination. Once you trace free will to its root or summit or height, and once you trace predestination to its root or summit or height, you find it's the same thing. But it's very difficult to reach that height because we're not usually experiencing it. We're experiencing choices that we make with parts of ourselves, not with the whole of ourselves. So we're down at the foothills of the mountain. So we use silly images like the puppeteer or causality or dominoes or uh, crystal balls, all of which are, are partial. Other questions? Don't have to confine yourself to the stuff I said. Anything that's relevant to related even vaguely to it. What were some of the sources behind um, you saying that Lord of the Rings could be perfected or we might find it actually be true? The last two paragraphs of Tolkien's essay on fairy stories, very suggestive, not dogmatic. I think the purpose of those suggestions is not to predict, but just to correct our inveterate habit of limiting the divine imagination. Which is why I think it's very good to speculate about heaven. What do we know anyway? Almost nothing. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard. Therefore, let's speculate. Let's not limit the possibilities to one narrow, little, familiar, dull thing. Let's dare to talk about music in heaven and sex in heaven, surfing in heaven. How will the beatific vision in heaven differ from the beatific vision on earth? Fascinating theological questions. Very difficult. Most theologians don't dare to touch them. Theologians today deal with social and political and ethical questions. Those are easy. Questions like, how is it that the absolute and eternal distinction between the creator and the creature is not threatened by the fact that we will participate in the divine nature? That's a fascinating question. Both are data. Nagel does explore uh, nicely, though allegorically, they nevertheless captures something of that spirit of the contrast between what we know here and, and what the reality foreshadowed. Yeah. yeah. 
I'm aware of a number, maybe a dozen stories of people, real people, who have died and have had visions of heaven on their deathbed. And in every single case, they do not communicate. They simply say, oh, or oh, look, or oh, isn't it beautiful? When they're living, they often have detailed visions, many of them fakes like Swedenborg's, many of them authentic but easily misunderstood, many of them definitive. But on their deathbeds, I think God prevents the ones who are half in heaven already from saying anything about it, as he prevented St. Paul from telling what this man, who was Paul himself, of course, lifted up into the seventh heaven, saw. He was forbidden to tell them. Well, he's, he's seeing things that are true. That's clear. He's in the spirit. He's in the mind of God. It's a kind of mental telepathy, but... He's seeing things that, that are more like platonic forms. My interpretation of Revelation is something like my interpretation of modern art. Look at the difference between a war photographer who does a very good job depicting the horrors of war by looking at the, the corpses in Milai, let's say, and turns us on to the horror of the Vietnam War, versus Picasso's Guernica, which is based on an actual occasion, his hometown, Guernica, Spain, was destroyed by the first Air Force bombing. And he went there and saw the places that he had played in all messed up. The, the cow barn and the, and the light. And you can recognize those places if you've ever been to Guernica. But it's also universal. That's London. That's Berlin. That's Hiroshima. That's the World Trade Center. So it makes it universal. It's like a myth. Particular, yet universal at the same time. Well, I interpret most of the symbols in Revelation that way. The Antichrist, for instance. Is the Antichrist Diocletian, who took the blasphemous name? Yes. Nero, too? Maybe. Uh, what about uh, Judas? Mm -hmm. Hitler? Sure. Oh, then it's not a concrete individual? Yes. Well, how can it be both a Jungian archetype and a concrete individual? Well, it's myth. Would it be safe to say that John sees immortal things to mortal eyes, distinct from what we see on the threshold of death, which is seeing immortal things through eyes that are becoming immortal? Yes. That's a very good way of putting it. This is also why all attempts to calendarize Revelation have failed. The time sequence is not a literal time sequence. It's deliberately juxtaposed in a Picasso-like way. But at the same time, it's about this earth. Could you flesh out a little bit more uh, Lewis's statement about until you have uh, given yourself to Christ, you will have no real self. There is a sense in which... It's easy to understand that, but I'm sure that he was thinking probably on some much greater level. Well, let's use a simple analogy. God creates everything else and gives it its essence, and it's got its complete essence, even though it has to grow into it, like the acorn has to become the oak. Nothing else has free will, and therefore God does not associate the creature with its own creation. With us... God gives us the incredible dignity of being present at the moment of our own creation and being an aid or an instrument or a co-creator of our own essence in the sense that he gives us the raw materials, our heredity, our environment, our body, and then we make of that raw material one work of art or another by our choices. It's all part of his plan. It's predestined, sure, but free will is real. It's a genuine instrument by which God sculpts souls. And when we, as Lewis says,
turn that central part of ourselves, which is the I, not any faculty like the thought or even the conscious will of the very self, when we turn that into a more heavenly or hellish creature, we are really participating in divine creativity. We're not creating out of nothing, but we're creating. Tolkien didn't create the Lord of the Rings out of nothing, but he created. We can't create matter, only God can create matter, but we can create form. Good form or evil form, hellish form or heavenly form. Now, that's a weight of glory that it's almost impossible to bear. God says, I will let you decide who you will be. So when he's using the word self, he's not using it, he's using it in the sense of the essence of the image of God versus yeah. moving in the opposite. If you want to use the categories body, soul, and spirit, this is spirit. If body is your relation to the world and soul is your relation to yourself and others and spirit is your relation to God, you are responsible for your own spirit. At the same time, whenever it's good and whenever it works, God does it. That's the wonderful paradox. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who works in you. That's not compromising on either half of the paradox. This is one of the reasons I love Augustine. He sees that fullness of scriptural paradoxicality one of my favorite books is his, his long and difficult treatise on grace and free will. He begins by saying they're both data, but they seem contradictory. Grace means sovereign grace. So God is the first cause of everything, including our free choices. But free will means really free will. So we are the first cause of our free choices. But there can't be two first causes. Either we're only the second or instrumental cause, and then God's sovereign, but we're not free. Or else we are the first cause and God is not, in which case we're free and God's not sovereign. So how can there be divine omnipotence and sovereignty and predestination on the one hand and genuine free will on the other without contradiction? He states the question in as hard a way as possible. Looks like a flat-out contradiction. And that takes only a chapter or two. And then he spends about ten chapters not trying to solve the question at all, but just exploring what free will means. And another 10 chapters exploring what divine sovereignty and divine omnipotence means. And in getting deeper into free will, he sees that it's not just the ability to be free of causes that push you around. But that it's, first of all, a choice that's made not by physical causality, but by reason. And secondly, a choice that's made in terms of ends and not just pushing forces. And thirdly, a choice that is of yourself. Every free choice makes you freer. So you don't just choose the object, you choose your own freedom in choosing freely. And he finally gets down most deeply to the notion that the freest choice of all is the choice of liberty, which is freedom from anything that prevents your perfection. That is freedom from sin. Freedom from addiction. Okay, then he leaves it. And he goes to divine sovereignty. God's grace is absolute and omnipotent and meets no possible resistance, unlike any force in the universe. Well, how does it work? Well, it doesn't work by force. Anything in the universe has another force that it has to overcome, like two boxers. One beats the other. But nothing beats God, not even the devil. So his force is absolutely omnipotent and therefore follows the nature of the cause, God and is not at all dependent on the nature of the effect. One boxer can knock out another only if he boxes left-handed or crouches or something. God doesn't have to conform to anything, all right? So what is the nature of God that determines everything that God does? Love. 
What is the essence of love? Love is to will the good and the perfection of the other. So it's because God is omnipotent that dogs are doggy and cats are catty and green is green and grass is grass and humans are human. Uh, What is it to be human? Well, to be human is to have a mind that knows the truth and to have a will that loves the good. And the will is free, a will that freely loves the good. So if God's grace wins out, then that grace will perfect our human nature and thus our freedom. And now you go back and look at freedom, and freedom is teleologically oriented. Freedom is positive. Freedom is freedom to attain your liberty, not just freedom from causal influences. Well, you combine the two ideas and you find they're almost the same thing. You find that God operates through your very freedom. And the more God there is in you, the freer you are. So the two ideas now are no longer contradictory. They're two sides of the same coin. There's no problem left. So he doesn't solve the problem by clever philosophy. He solves the problem by deep insight into the two halves of the paradox. He loves to just stand there with the paradox like a giant, one half in one hand, one half in the other hand, and not compromise either one, but look more deeply into them. And then he sees a a synthesis. That's what Paul did in that great verse. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling for, not although, but for. It's God who does all the work. Or alternatively, God does all the work and therefore you're really free. Uh, Good analogy.